Today, you have stumbled on to the last episode of Season 1. This is Episode 36 of My Life, and welcome to it. Today is Saturday, July 25th, 2020. I began this journey on February 1st, 2020. It's only been six months since we started this. And it started simply as me sharing my life. My goal was to leave something for my children to listen to. I don't like writing, so this seemed like the best idea. And in February, the world tour of SARS-CoV-2 had not yet started. But once it got started, and we started staying at home, it dawned on me that this was an opportunity to reach out. I had always intended to have guests. My goal was to eventually, you know, purchase another microphone and then have a face-to-face conversation. With the lockdown, new opportunities presented themselves with Skype and Zoom and various other ways of having a conversation without being present with each other physically. And so I began a series, a mini-series within the larger series, and it was called It's Not About Me, It's About Us. And I've had the opportunity to chat with many of my friends, find out how they're doing. Um, That began in earnest in the month of April, and uh, that's been quite an adventure. Now we're bringing season one to a close, and I still have friends that I want to go back to and check in on, and new friends that I want to share with everybody, and so we'll be doing more of that in season two. But for a full explanation of what season two may entail, please stay to the end of the podcast and I'll talk a little bit more about it. For now, I want to close out this season talking a little bit more about my childhood. And uh, I've relished the opportunity to share myself with so many people. You know far more about me than I probably know about you at this point. And that's okay. That was my intention. So uh, let's go ahead and I'll start telling stories about growing up. Growing up outside of Avenel in the uh, PG&E compressor station didn't afford a lot of opportunity to interact with other children. But there was this one little boy, and we were, I think, the same age even. Stephen Ward is his name. And I was very jealous of Stephen, um, or Stevie Ward, maybe what we called him. I can't remember exactly. But I felt that his parents were nicer to him than they, my parents were to me. He had older brothers. I was the firstborn. That might have been some of the difference. But as a little kid growing up, we don't understand those things. And I used to wonder, why was I born in the family I was born into and not born into a family like Stevie's? It it didn't seem fair. And um, I felt like I'd been born into the wrong family, that God or whoever was in charge of that sort of thing 
made a mistake. I I uh, I didn't feel like I fit in. I wasn't a happy child. I had happy moments, and I'm looking back, I um. I I don't really I wouldn't categorize my childhood as un, unhappy. But um. This leads me to another story. We moved away from Avenal in 1968 and never went back. Once I was out living on my own, and this was after the divorce, it was 1988, it had been 20 years, I decided to take a weekend and drive down there to revisit my childhood city. So I got there in the evening, found a hotel, and I think I went to a bar that night or something to listen to music. And the next day, I decided I would just walk around. Is it Avenel not that big? You know, there's parts of it that are are newer and bigger now, but the part that I grew up in is quite small. I decided that I would walk up past the high school and the park and walk up to the house that I remember growing up in. And I did. And it looks almost exactly the same. There was the basketball hoop that Dad put up. In an alley, in a in a vacant lot right next to the house, still there. And uh, but I didn't have the courage, you know, to walk up to the door and knock on it, introduce myself. A fence had been built, and so I couldn't see into the backyard. Dad had built uh, a tree house in this big old tree that was in the backyard. And I used to, I mean, it was an interesting build. It was actually on four four by fours as like stilts so that it couldn't fall. It had walls and things. And I, I remember, I, I think my parents even let me spend the night up there a couple of times. But I couldn't see it because of this fence. So I turned around and I, I was walking back along a different road. There was a line of a row of houses on one side of the street and an empty field on the other side of the street. And there was this uh, older fella outside watering his plants. And he looks over at me and he says, Hey, can I help you? Avenel Small. And I'm guessing most people know everybody. And I was out of place, walking. And so I said, yeah, you know, I used to uh, I used to live in the house around the corner. And he looks at me and he says, are you Gil Jensen's son? Of course, I, I was flabbergasted. And I said, y- yes, I am. My name's Chris. He goes, I used to work with your dad. Why don't you come on in and have a glass of tea? That was amazing. You know, um, as I was getting older and I had a son of my own and that provided challenges of its own that I had never even thought of, I remember going to my father and, and, and asking him, Dad, what was I like as a child? And his response back to me was, You know, son, I can't remember. That was the end of that. Um, That's a disappointing thing, another disappointment in my life, right? So here I am sitting with this this guy who was a, he worked with my dad, PG&E, back in the day. 
And I asked him, I said, did you, did you know me? He goes, oh yeah. He said, we all knew, knew about you. He said, you were, you were a handful. He says, uh, we re I remember the day that you ran away and walked out of town. Which leads me to another story. I, you know, I don't know what had happened. Something did. I was upset. I already knew I was born into the wrong family. This wasn't my family. I had asked my parents over and over again, am I adopted? I mean, I, for real, I did not feel like I fit into this family. And over and over again, my parents assured me I was not adopted. So anyway, something happened, and I'd seen enough movies to know what to do, right? So I went back to my room. I got my little red handkerchief, which is, you know, like if you're three years old, four years old, a little red handkerchief is pretty good size. And so I put things that were important to me in there. Um, I think I had like a little army, you know, rubber, plastic army guy and some rocks maybe. And who knows? What I don't have any idea what I put in there. And it was pretty silly. And then I took, I found it, I found a stick and I tied it to a stick and I put it over my shoulder and I headed out of camp. I just walked out of camp. And of course, you know, people saw me and called my parents. And so I got, I got pretty far, I think. And, um, the camp was surrounded with fields and fields and fields. There's a lot of cantaloupe. You know, we would go out after the harvesters had come through and we we would call the leftovers. They let us do that, the gleaners. And we'd go out there and we'd get cantaloupe and bring it home. It was great. So there's all these fields surrounding the camp for miles and miles. I'd gotten pretty far, actually. And, uh, you know, it was getting to uh, late afternoon, late afternoon, early evening, and uh, car pulls up, and it's it's dad. And uh, passenger door opens, and he says, uh, "You know, I'm I'm here to to bring you home." And I'm like, "I'm not going. I'm just not going." And uh, he said, "Okay, all right, I'll make you a deal." You know, it's just about dinner time. Mom's making dinner. And if you come back and have dinner, I will bring you right back out here. And you can just keep going. And I was hungry. You know, I didn't put any food in my little knapsack thingy. I mean, I was three, four. You know, I wasn't the greatest strategist at the time. And uh, I thought that was a splendid, a splendid plan. So I hopped into the car and we went back home and we had dinner. Pretty soon it was dark. Dad said, okay, I'll take you back. We got in the car and headed back out. I'm pretty sure Dad took me exactly to where we were going. I opened the door. And it's dark, dark, dark. Because we're, you know, we're out in the middle of nowhere. There's no city lights. There's no street lights. There's no lights. It's dark. And we used to have kit foxes that lived out in the area. And I could hear them howling. Did I, did I say it was dark? And I decided it was probably not a good idea to run away at this time. So I said, Dad, can I come home? He said, sure. And I'm sure that was Dad's plan all along. Maybe Mom and Dad came up with it together. I don't know. But went back home and, you know, I probably tried running away a couple of times. But this guy that I'm talking to, you know, now I, I'm now in my 30s. And he's an older man. He worked with Dad. He says, well, you sure were a handful. And your dad was always frustrated with you. Okay. You know, so my upset with my dad was 
reciprocated on his end by being frustrated with me, so it was a two-way street. We did not get along. I'm convinced at this stage of my life that, yeah, you know, I was not adopted. I was born into the right family. It's just the way it goes. You know, it's the birth lottery, so they say. But uh, I don't know how my dad felt about being a father. I don't know his perception of me as a child. He could not remember. So what I have is what I have. In episode 25, I talked about being sick, being in the hospital for various reasons. Um, I want to talk a little bit about my broken bones. I've had plenty of them. One of the things I used to think about myself was that I could fly. I watched, you know, the black and white Superman. It was on the Mickey Mouse, the Mickey Mouse show, showed episodes of Superman. I watched uh, Mighty Mouse. One of the things that I loved to do was, as I got a little older, I had a blue handkerchief. Sometimes I'd use a bath towel. I would tie it around my neck as a cape, and I would run around the house like I was Superman or Mighty Mouse. I thought I could do it. I really did. Well, one day, we had an apple tree in our yard, and... I climbed up in the apple tree, and uh, I jumped. You know, normally jumping is feet first, so you land on your feet. But I thought I could fly, so I jumped out head first. and landed on my, on my face and uh, broke one of my teeth. Yeah. There was another time where we'd gone to um, a friend of my parents' house. One of the projects that our local Episcopal church would do leading up to Palm Sunday was make little crosses out of, you take a palm frond and you fold it up and it's very clever. And so they were holding a, a, you know, like a little party. Bunch of bunch of people came over to make a bunch of them so they could pass them out. But the kids, we played in the backyard, and they had like a, a swing set, and it had it had swings and a teeter totter and a jungle gym with a ladder on it. Well, I climbed to the top of the ladder and got to the very top rung, and I I was balancing myself up there. And uh, guess what I did? Yeah, you guessed it. I jumped right out. This time I didn't go face first, though, head first. I jumped with my feet. But uh, gravity came into play, and uh, I landed on both feet and promptly broke both of my feet. I remember being taken, you know, to the hospital, and they said, yeah, you've broken some bones in your feet, but uh, the bones are so small, there's no real way that we can put a cast on them. What we suggest that you do is get some really nice shoes. And they recommended Buster Brown shoes. And I remember going to the, the shoe place and uh, buying the Buster Brown shoes to wear. And, um, you know, given time, my feet healed up just fine. Um, I don't remember much of that. I don't remember if they hurt or whether I couldn't walk around for a while or, you know, what the circumstances was. But, yeah. And I think a residual of some of that is... um, I don't like high places, and I always feel like well, I want to jump. There's something in me that wants to jump. I'm a jumper. So, hmm. um, 
a lot of what happened to me happened during nap time because I didn't like nap time. And so I would, you know, go to my room and lie down and wait for everything to be nice and quiet in the house. And then I would sneak out. I always wanted to play with the big kids. So this one day, um, I had a bicycle. Now this was my very first bicycle. I'd learned how to ride a bicycle on, you know, training wheels. It was a small bike. But my first real bicycle, my dad had taken me to Kalinga, which was the next largest town. It was only like, I don't know, 17 miles away, seven miles away. Right in some, it was either seven or 17, I don't remember. Oh, and you may know Kalinga because they had a big earthquake made the news. But anyway, that's where we would go. There was a... Um, uh, a used shop there, thrift store, I had bicycles. And um, we looked and looked and looked, and Dad picked one out for me, took it home. And it was an enormous bicycle. I could not get onto the bicycle by myself. I had a plan, though. We figured it out. So there was a wall that was real close to where I lived. And I would walk the bike over to the wall and I would climb up on the, you know, I'd lean the bike on the wall, I'd climb up onto the wall and then climb onto my bicycle and then push off. And the way I got off my bicycle was I'd go back to that wall and I'd ride right up alongside it, slow down and then lean in so that it would hit the wall and I would climb off my bicycle onto the wall and then back onto the ground. I did that for a long, long time until I grew up to be a size where I could get on the bike by myself. Well, anyway, we had one steep hill in our little camp outside of Avenel. And, of course, because there were so few people there and, and all the people that were there worked for PG&E, during the day when people were working, there was no traffic. At least that's the illusion. And a bunch of us would love to get go to the top of this hill and then ride down as fast as we could, right? And then just coast along the straightaway, the level. That was probably as close to flying as I could experience. I just loved that experience. And so I remember um, heading down the hill. I was just going fast. The wind in my hair, in my face, the feeling of flying. And from the side, a girl was riding her bicycle and came into my path of travel on the perpendicular. I broadsided her. I don't remember exactly what happened, but here's what happened. I was going so fast that when I hit her, I flew over my handlebars. I flew over her, and I did a face plant into the pavement. And it knocked all the air out of me. I could not breathe. And so the other kids, the bigger kids, they carried me off to the side. Um, the young girl who was riding her bicycle, she was shook up for sure. I think she had some scrapes, but nothing too bad. Finally, I was able to catch my breath, but I looked a sight. I had gravel in my face. I was bleeding profusely. And uh, the consensus was we need to get Chris home. So they walked me home, and uh, my mom would tell me that they, when, the, when she opened the door and saw me, it was all she could do to not let out a scream to try to, she had to, she wanted to try to stay calm and to minimize what she saw as absolutely horrific. So she got me in and cleaned me all up and bandaged me as best she could. Uh, the next morning I woke up and, oh, my wrist hurt really bad and it was all swollen and 
I said, man, my wrist, my wrist hurts. And all of a sudden, you know, my face took second place. So then I got taken to the doctor and they put my arm under um, some kind of a scope. It was not an x-ray. It was a, like a, a scope of some sort. You could see the bones in real time. He put my, put my wrist in there and he says, oh, you broke your wrist. So I got a cast. I've had lots of, lots of casts. Um, you know, you remember the podcast a while back. I don't remember the number right off, but I talked about my skiing accident where I broke my leg and was in a cast for a long time. I've had my share of casts. Yeah. Um, my very first broken bone was my collarbone. And when I look in a mirror, I can actually see that one collarbone is a little bit more protruding. Another one's more recessed. You can tell the difference. They're not the same. But I don't remember it happening because it happened to me when I was really little. My father used to like to swing me around. And one day, he was holding me by my ankles, and he was spinning around, swinging me around. I was probably laughing. And he swung, swung me right into the coffee table and broke my collarbone. I'm glad I don't remember that exactly. Um, and I really, my memory, the story that was told me is that it was, it was done, it was an accident, it was, we were having fun, and that's the story I want to remember. But knowing my father and his anger... I'm not sure, but I don't want to go there in my mind. That was my first broken bone, my collarbone. I had some other experiences. Um, I wasn't the smartest kid in the world. I did a lot of really unthinking things. We had a, a swing set in our playground. It wasn't as elaborate as the one with the ladder, I think, my parents didn't want me climbing on things because I would jump off of them. It had swings, it had a slide, and it had a, a teeter-totter contraption. Um, it had, you know, there were poles that were attached to the top, and that's where the hinges were, and two seats, and you would swing back and forth on it. Well, one day, I was standing on the on the seat, and I, had, I was grabbing onto the poles with my hand, because I could get a lot of leverage, right? And I'd get a lot of swing going back and forth. And as I was doing that, I looked up and I could see the where the poles were hinged at the top. And as the, as the pole swung forward, it would, it would open up. You could see a little hole, like a mouth opening. And then as you swing back, it would close. Now, I don't know what got into my mind. But when we swung forward, when I swung, I was on it by myself. When I swung forward and that hinge mouth opened, I stuck my finger in it. Now, I don't know whether I thought I could pull it back fast enough, but I didn't. It, it, it didn't cut the tip of my finger off, but I did lose my fingernail which was a traumatic experience all on its own. If you've never lost a fingernail, it's really, really scary because as a kid, you have to trust that it's going to grow back. What if it doesn't grow back? Right? And um, to, watch the, to watch the fingernail come off, it's kind of weird. Kind of weird. So there's, other, there's two other stories. Uh, about nap time, I want to share. Um, one of them was I had I had uh, snuck out of the house. Right on the outside, there's so um, the, the compressor station where we lived, the camp, had a chain link fence all the way around it. Well, far off to the east, if I remember correctly. Outside of that, 
fence was a fire station, and it was dedicated specifically to the camp. The swimming pool where I learned how to swim was actually the water reservoir in case there was a fire. So anyway, so there's this this fire camp outside of the fence, fire station. Well, this one day I decided, I think my sister went with me, we decided to climb the fence and just, uh, you know, play around in the fire station, which I had never seen. Now, fire sta- this fire station had a special rack where the hoses would be laid out. So fire hoses get really, really wet. They're sort of, I don't know, they're made out of a, I don't know, woven material of some sort. And they get wet. And so before they roll them up, they dry them out so they don't, like, get mold and mildew and that sort of thing. So they've got these drying racks. I had climbed up onto the drying rack and I was walking along the edge, like, you know, like a tightrope walker, you know, balancing act kind of a thing. And I lost my balance. And which way do you think I fell? Did I fall outside of the rack and hit the ground? No, I fell inside. Um, and in trying to catch my balance, I th- stuck my foot out and it went in between two slats that the hoses would lie on. And those slats had, you know, they weren't like touching. There was a gap between them. And it just so happened that the, the gap between the slats were just a, was just a little bit closer together than my leg was wide. And I went through it all the way to my hip. And it took the hide off of both sides of my leg. I must have screamed bloody murder at that point. The The wife of the fireman comes running out. I don't know what she was thinking. Um, they couldn't get my leg out the way it was. They had to remove one of the slats. So they get me out, and she takes me in. This is where I had my first experience with tincture of methylate, I think that's what it's called, or iodine or something. Talk about pain. I guess it's something that they put on kids to try to convince them not to hurt themselves in the future because it's not pleasant. So she calls my mom, and my mom comes and gets me. And You know, that my leg's bandaged. I guess I remember. My leg gets bandaged up, um, and... They had to, uh, I think my mom had to let out my pants leg a little bit so that my leg would fit in my pants so that I could go to school. I was school age. Yeah. So another time I snuck out of the house, I was walking around. It was a spring or summer, and the big kids were playing croquet in this yard. Now, I'd never seen croquet before. I didn't know what it was, but it looked like a lot of fun. And there was a croquet mallet that was just on, you know, it was on the ground and a ball. And so I grabbed one and I was, uh, I, you know, I was playing, I was hitting the ball, I was having fun. And the head on the croquet rallet, uh, mallet became loose. Now, if you've ever messed with a croquet mallet, um, wooden, you might know that they're threaded, so you screw the head on to the, to the handle, right? I didn't know that. I'd never, you know, what did I know about croquet? So what I did was I tried to pound the head back onto the handle. And uh, the handle shattered, and uh, the sharp point went directly into my right calf muscle. When they pulled it out, I looked at it, and all I could see was this white tissue in there, and then all of a sudden the blood started coming out. And that's a good way for me to freak out when I see blood. So I did, and uh, the big kids carried me back back to the house again. Um, I was quite a kid. 
Um, there was another kid that lived there. His name was Roger Clark. He was the bully of the camp. And he was my my nemesis. Um, back in those days, kids' toys weren't made out of plastic. You might get uh, like a hard plastic of something. But uh, I had a... Uh, cowboy six-shooter with holsters that I would wear. Roy Rogers was a TV personality. And um, the Lone Ranger and all that stuff growing up. I watched all that. And I like to play pretend. So one day I was wearing my holster with my six-shooter, and, you know, it's made out of metal. It might have plastic grips attached to it, but the basic part of the gun was metal. And Roger Clark, for, I don't know what he was doing, but he was, he was pestering me to no end. And I'd had enough. I'd watched enough westerns to know what to do. So as he was walking away, I took the gun out of my holster and I grabbed it by the barrel and I walked up behind him and I hit him in the head with it as hard as I could. In thinking back, I'm glad I didn't kill him, um, but I did split his head open um, my parents and his parents, I think, had a serious heart-to-heart chat. Um, but, you know, Roger never bothered me after that. I wonder why. Hmm? I don't know. I was quite a kid. No wonder my dad was frustrated with me. No wonder this guy told me that dad had a problem. He didn't know what to do with me. I can't hardly imagine. Fortunately, my children never did anything like that when they were growing up. Uh, so, a couple more stories. When I was growing up, first child, my parents really relied on Dr. Benjamin Spock. He had a book, wrote a book about babies. He was the expert, knew everything, right? Baby would love his bathwater. Remember that episode where I would scream bloody murder during bath time? He also said that babies loved beets. So I'm sitting in my high chair. Mom was feeding me probably pureed beets because I was really little. I mean, I was baby, baby, baby. I didn't like them. So what did I do? I spit them out, and I did it forcefully. With enough force, they went all over the wall, these beets. Guess what? Dad had just finished wallpapering that wall just a few days before. And here I'd spit up beets all over that wall. And as you know, beets stain. It wasn't something that could be just cleaned up. You know, it's kind of funny th in thinking about it, but if I was my dad, I think I might be a little upset. I mean, even though it was a baby who didn't know any better, It's still upsetting. Here's this wall that he had just wallpapered himself, now stained with beets because I had spit them up all over. Yeah. What a kid, huh? You should be thankful your kid's not like me. 
Here's a final story. I think this will be the final story. I'll sit on this episode for a while, and if I think of something more, I'll add it, but this will probably be the final story. One day, I was, I think, in my 40s. I got a package from Mom. I didn't expect it. It wasn't my birthday. It wasn't Christmas. There was no real reason for me to get a package from Mom. And I opened it up, and in it is a green blanket that has a, around the edge, the trim, whatever. It's kind of the silky, satiny material, right? And a little note. And um, I ended up calling Mom about it. She was feeling guilty for something that she did as I was growing up. Like a lot of kids, I had a security blanket. And I would, to feel secure, I would hold that blanket and I would rub the silky, satiny bordering. There's got to be a word for it that I don't know. The trim, whatever. And while I would do that, I would also suck my thumb. I was a thumb sucker. And I, was, I would do it with such force that I actually created a callus on the back of my thumb from my teeth. The other thing that was happening was I was deforming my upper palate and I was pushing my top teeth forward. So one time the doctor saw what was happening with the structure of my mouth and my thumb. And he encouraged and highly suggested to my parents that they get me to stop sucking my thumb. And the way to do that would be to get rid of the blanket because I were, they were tied. They were tied together. Comfort blanket, sucking thumb. I would do those two activities together. So what mom started doing was that every time the blanket, blanket went to get washed, she would cut it, a little strip off of it. When I got it back, it was smaller, but I didn't notice it. And she kept doing it over and over and over again until eventually there was no blanket. And for whatever reason, I never caught on to what was going on. I was too young to maybe conceptualize and understand, hey, this blanket's getting smaller. And sure enough, when the blanket was gone, I stopped sucking my thumb. Mom felt guilty about that. And so when I was in my 40s, she bought me another blanket. The blanket that I had, that I remember, was golden yellow or something like that. This one's green. She couldn't find an exact match. But she sent me a new blanket, a new comfort blanket, which I still have. It's folded up. I don't use it, but it's... It's got sentimental value to me. You know, it's it's funny as we grow older, you know, I'm in my 40s, so that meant mom was probably in her 60s or early 70s. As we get older, we start reflecting back on our lives, and this was something that as she reflected back on, she felt bad about. So this was her way to make reparations to say, I'm sorry for this. I didn't even know I was doing it, and I'm sorry that I did it because it was wrong. Interesting how time plays with our minds and what sticks and, and what doesn't.
As it turned out, when I was in, oh gosh, either junior high, I think it was junior high, I ended up going to an orthodontist because I my, my front teeth were so far out. I had developed with the thumb some sucking, with the with the thumb sucking. I'd also developed an action with my tongue where I pushed forward with my tongue. And over time, I had pushed my permanent front teeth forward, which was causing a problem with my bite. And I remember, not only did I get braces to try to correct a lot of that, but I had to retrain my tongue to not push forward. And uh, I spent a lot of time with these exercises. I had these little tiny rubber bands that I would put on the tip of my tongue, and then I would hold that rubber band to the roof of my mouth as I spoke to try to teach myself not to push my tongue forward when I spoke. And over time, it worked. So even though my thumb-sucking blanket rubbing episode happened very early in my life, some of the physiological things I learned carried on into my youth and had to be changed. So that's the stories that I have for now. Um, there may be more stories that come up in season two. Although I'm have, I have a feeling that um, season two is going to be a lot more about current things. But I'm going to talk about that more as we get into the, the very end of the, of the podcast. Thus, we have reached the conclusion of this episode. It's a strange feeling to close out season one, but I'm looking forward to taking a break and working on some new things. I'm going to look for some new music. I'm going to be working with some new software. Um, to process the sound. I continue to look for a better, cleaner sound. Never quite happy. So I'll spend some time doing some research and studying the program. That should be fun. And I'm also going to work on a mini-series that I hope I can launch quickly so that no one has to wait much between episodes, which will be called Chasing After God, where I will begin to talk about my journey um, in the land of spirituality. Uh, it was a long journey, an interesting journey to me, um, and I'm looking forward to sharing it with you and I will begin with my grandparents. Interesting stories there. As you've probably been able to discern, these episodes really aren't written by me. I say that after every podcast. This episode has been written and produced by. I, I say that just on account of because. I really just talk. And tell stories. If anything is written down, it's very it's ideas or just reminders of the what happened in the story. But it's not like I write it out as script. And you could probably tell. I want to remind everyone that there is an, an email address um, for this podcast specifically. Um, if in case you want to drop me a line of encouragement, of suggestions, of criticism, of whatever you want. 
and it's MLAWTI101 at gmail.com. But I also want to thank David Patterson, friend of mine, who works with uh, Johnny Man Productions. He has been my uh, counsel as far as technical things go. I thank him very much for that. David um, also has a podcast called Wasting All the Time. There are, right now there's two others, but often there's three others that provide an hour's worth of improvisational comedy. I probably butchered that word like I always do. Anyway, it's quite fun to listen to, and it's very creative. They also have uh, a little podcast that goes along with it called The Plot Thickens. And this is an ongoing story that develops over time, but it's also improvisational. The artwork for the podcast was drawn by Dave Edwards, another friend of mine, who is currently on another art project. And you can uh, follow Dave, if you wish, on Instagram, at EvilDaveTM. And I want to thank Anchor, although they probably don't listen to this. I want to thank them anyway, because they are providing the hosting website, and it's free, um, and that I really appreciate. And they can be found at anchor.fm. So I'll see you again in a couple of months. Hopefully more interesting stories to tell. Some more old and new guests. So until then, be safe. Be well. I'll see you in a couple of months. And God bless.